Be seated. Hello. In Mikkelsen Vernalis and His Majesty the King, David Leclerc, Mustafa Mahmoud for the appellant. Mikkelsen Vernalis, Jean-Philippe Mackay and Robert Benoit for the respondent, His Majesty the King. And so we'll begin with you, Mr. Leclerc. I will be sharing my time with uh, my colleague and will be sharing the task of convincing you to uh, set aside the appellate decision. We take for granted that you're aware of uh, the facts of the case. We are definitely aware of the facts of the case. All right, so I won't repeat uh, what we've already said in uh, our factum. The exercise today is to determine if the Court of Appeal erred in law. So with our analysis, we have to look at the trial decision. The Quebec appellate decision was unreasonable and could not rest on the evidence. It was circumstantial evidence. And the issue of possession was at play. The appellant was in a car. A weapon was found in a bag. And on the weapon, there was a DNA that did not belong to the appellant. So at the heart of this debate is the distinction between a reasonable inference and conjecture. Question, before going there, what is the uh, reviewable uh, test? Answer, it would be uh, the correctness standard. The trial judge, when she heard the evidence, there was this issue of uh, reasonable inference versus conjecture. Justice uh, Schreiger was uh, dissenting. In paragraphs 22-23, the appellate court said, before these principles, we have to wonder if the presence of Mr. Daniel's DNA and the presence of the bag close to this person could lead to the inference that he put yes. he placed the weapon in the bag without the knowledge of the appellant. If the answer is yes, then we have to set aside the decision. Question, yes, but... In itself, the presence of Mr. Daniel's DNA on the weapon, what does it prove? We saw that the majority of the Court of Appeal considered the theory that the appellant had placed the weapon in his own bag and also that Mr. Daniel could have placed the weapon in the appellant's bag without the appellant's knowledge. Both are possible. It seems to me, you correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me, Justice Schreger in paragraph 28, 
and Justice Moore for the majority. In paragraph 38, both examined this possibility that Mr. Daniel could have placed the weapon in the bag without the knowledge of the appellant. Is that correct? Answer, yes, but Justice Schreiger, in his case, uh, the inference that he drew is that the weapon could have been put there without the appellant's knowledge, but it's not the only criteria. Question, yes, that's not the only test at all. It's not a question of knowing if it's possible or plausible or imaginable. What is the question that we must ask when it comes to that theory? Answer. It's uh, whether the constellation of facts is not only the presence of the DNA, the proximity of Mr. Daniel to the weapon, and the behavior of a Mr. Daniel. And all of that would suggest that the weapon was placed there without the knowledge of the appellant. Now, that are, those are not the only tests. There's also consent and control. The events unfolded very quickly. And in the facts, there's no observation of the vehicle or of the bag. And question, you're moving away from my question. My question is the following. Did the majority make an error in paragraph 38 in dealing with the unreasonable verdict issue in regards to Mr. Schrader's hypothesis, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I've misinterpreted his reasons, Mr. Schrader said, this is a reasonable inference that it was placed there without the appellant's knowledge, and the majority answers the opposite. Can you explain to me what uh, it says in it says in 38? Answer: Yes. The majority says it's not important to know whether the appellant was aware or not. It's irrelevant whether the appellant placed the weapon in the bag himself. Question: That is not at all what it says. It says far more. It says. It is unimportant whether or not the appellant placed it in the bag. The prosecution simply had to establish that the weapon had not been put there without his knowledge or without his consent. But that is specifically the conclusion that the judge came to. So the inference, according to the majority, that rests on all of the circumstantial evidence was reasonable. The fact that there was another plausible or imaginable explanation is not at issue here. It comes back to what uh, was asked of you earlier. Was there an error in applying Villa Roman? Answer. Well, that is something we will deal, deal with in our arguments. The prosecution did not fulfill their burden to show that the weapon was put there with the consent of Mr. Vernalis. Question, Mr. Leclerc. At trial, 
did you specifically argue the inference that the dissenting judge had deemed to be problematic? Answer, I was not there. Question, but that is a, a, an important question. Answer, I don't believe that it was argued, but our opinion, the appellant's opinion, is that it was up to the trial judge to assess if uh, a reasonable inference could be drawn from uh, all of the evidence that was uh, presented. In the case at Bar, it was a narrative put forward by the Crown, and the trial judge was asked to infer that uh, Mr. Vernalis was guilty. We argue the opposite. My friend uh, will be dealing with this a little bit later, but this is an error. It's in paragraph 26 of Justice Schreiger's reasons, the dissenting decision. There seems to have been a reversal of the burden because the trial judge's reasoning was, since I don't believe the appellant's arguments, then the prosecution's arguments must be true. Question, but she did, she didn't just stop there, she looked at all the circumstances. Answer, in paragraph 26, Justice Schreiger quotes certain passages of the trial judge decision and says, uh, several contradictions eliminate all reasonable doubt when it comes to the control of uh, the loaded weapon. There's no doubt when it comes to the knowledge, consent, and control of the weapon. And she says, it's also a question of credibility and the defense or, and nor the appellant cannot benefit from that credibility. So that really wasn't uh, what she was supposed to decide. Question, and the majority answers these arguments in paragraph 36. What do you say to that? When it comes to paragraph 36, uh, my colleague will be dealing with that question. But you raise uh, one of the issues that M Justice Schrager mentioned, and the majority directly answers that question. And it counters the WD argument that uh, Justice Schrager rests uh, upon. Answer. My reading of paragraph 36 is that it creates a presumption of uh, possession in the absence of a reasonable explanation. If you look at the evidence, I argue that the, pr the evidence that could prove uh, that the appellant uh, had possession of the weapon, all of these uh, elements occurred extremely quickly uh, the stopping of the vehicle, looking inside the bag. And so this is an error that I argue the majority of the appellate court committed. Question, even if we look at the last sentence at this stage, the rejection of the testimony because of these contradictions becomes determining and fatal for 
the defense, given all of the evidence. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but it's not a possession. There's evidence here. Answer, there's circumstantial evidence. The judge says, uh, in the absence of a reasonable explanation, it becomes fatal. So in a way, it's as if the judge didn't have to look at the other uh, WD tests. Question, that's not what the majority is saying. Read 36. All of these elements, according, I believe, establish the control of the weapon. So it's all of the evidence that is circumstantial, as you say, but all of that leads to that conclusion. Answer, yes, but when it comes to an unreasonable verdict and there's circumstantial evidence, if there's a reasonable inference that is compatible with innocence, then the verdict becomes unreasonable. Question. She rejected his testimony, but she also looked at all of the other evidence to see if in the circumstances there was sufficient evidence to establish knowledge. She said, for example, when he was asked to identify himself. Uh, he took the papers out of the bag. The way in which the weapon was hidden, she took it into account all of those circumstances. The fact that she, that he took his ID out of the bag was important. The position of the bag in relation to the accused in the car, the way the weapon was hidden, the fact that there were clothes wrapped around the weapon. So she didn't simply say, I reject the accused's position. She looked at all of the circumstances and concluded that there was no uh, other reasonable inference that could be drawn. That is what the Court of Appeal, as Justice Kazara said, sums up in paragraph 36. Answer. But that's where the judge uh, erred. There were other reasonable inferences that were compatible with Mr. Vanillis's innocence. I believe the judge did not push this analysis far enough and simply rested with uh, this rejection of uh, the defense. Question, yes, but his ID was in the bag. Answer, yes, I understand, but that doesn't mean that the weapon couldn't have been put there without his knowledge before. If we take for in, for granted that Mr. Daniel had the weapon, he might have slipped it into the bag when the police arrived. That doesn't mean that Mr. Vernalis consented. They were in front of uh, police officers. He just got out of prison. There was a weapon in his bag. What was he supposed to do? So pass remaining passive is not uh, proof of consent. It's an inference, which I believe is closer to a conjecture. There was a very little time. We're not dealing with any old objects. Obviously, we were looking at a weapon, an illegal weapon. So if you look at all of those facts, there could be a reasonable inference. Question. Reasonable inference at appeal seems to me that you're arguing that it's rational, plausible, imaginable, 
that the judge could have considered that reasonable, but she rejected that. She made her own finding. She interpreted all of the evidence. And at appeal, for us, our only question is, was it reasonable? You say, no, there was another explanation, but that's not the test here. We're not trying to see if there was another rational or possible explanation. We have to determine if the judge's conclusions were reasonable. So you're using the word reasonable to ask us to put ourselves in the shoes of the child judge, but that is not our role. We were not at trial. We did not hear the testimony. We don't have those advantages. Answer. I'll answer your question and then uh, leave the floor to my colleague. I'm not asking you to step into the shoes of the trial judge. I'm just trying uh, to argue that if there were other inferences, then the verdict is unreasonable. Yes, Mr. Vernalis could have uh, been in possession of uh, the weapon, but that's not the only reasonable inference. And if there are other reasonable inferences and not... Uh, crazy conjectures, conjectures rather, we just have to establish that another reasonable inference was possible. Question. So you're not arguing that the trial judge was trying to come up with ridiculous conjectures? Question. Answer rather. Not at all. If there are other inferences that are reasonable, even if the guilty inference is reasonable, if there are other reasonable inferences, then we have to look at them. And so on that note, I will leave the floor to my colleague. Justices? To answer your question, Justice, we're not dealing with a case where there was no DNA in the bag. If there had been no DNA, or if the bag had not been next to mm, the appellant and Mr. Kevinson, we wouldn't be saying that the inference were, was unreasonable. The bag was there <laughs> next to the appellant and Mr. Kevinson and Mr. Kevinson's DNA was on the firearm. And so at the third step, the judge should have asked herself whether the evidence showed that the only reasonable inference was that Mr. Vernalis had knowledge that the weapon was in the bag. If we look at uh, Le Page, which is in a tab 13 of uh, the Respondent's Condensed Book. Page 670, tab 13. It says, uh, 
Viewed that way, it would be better to said that the absence of defense evidence, including the failure of the accused to testify, justifies the conclusion that no foundation for a reasonable doubt could be found on the evidence. It is not so much that the failure to testify justifies an inference of guilt. It is rather that it fails to provide any basis to conclude otherwise. On the next page... It says, in this case, since the totality of the evidence enabled the trial judge to infer guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, the absence of any explanation from the respondent merely failed to provide any basis to conclude otherwise. In the case at bar, it's the opposite. There's DNA that belongs to the other passenger. There is nothing in the evidence to refute that theory. The judge also said that uh, since uh, the accused uh, remained stone-faced when they discovered the firearm, that has some weight. Now, the appellant was, was arrested for possession of marijuana, and it's after um, a search incident to the arrest that uh, the weapon was found. Now, they say that Staying stone face proves something. Question. Are you arguing that that is an error of law? Or is this a different argument uh, about the unreasonableness of the verdict? Answer. Well, it's both. It's uh, the unreasonableness of the verdict and also an error at law. Because staying stone faced after being arrested for possession of cannabis does not mean that he knew that the firearm was in his bag. Because if that were true, then we would have to advise people to renounce their right to silence. Because their silence would be seen as a guilt question. The appellant testified here. So the right to silence, I, I understand. Your friend is going to be raising... Uh, Examples uh, of cases where accused refuse to testify. Latitude. When it comes to the attitude, the fact that he showed no emotion, but what do you think of the interpretation by the majority in paragraph 37? Thirty-seven. It seems to me that it responds to your concern. Look at the last sentence. The judge doesn't use this indicia to evaluate the credibility of the appellant during testimony in court. But it's a fact reported by the police to assess evidence at the time of the facts. It was evidence decisive answer if you look at page 22 of the respondents brief in tab 1 he says the, the attitude shows that this person knew for sure that the weapon was hidden in his back 
So he, he uses it to say that he was, he was calm. Therefore, it confirms the fact that the man knew the weapon was in his bag. I submit that even though this is an inference, there was another reasonable reference. The weapon could have been placed there without his knowledge. This could be strong possibility, a reasonable one that is consistent with Mr. Benelucci's innocence. Even if the judge did not believe him, maybe with reason, there were other reasonable inferences that were consistent. The bag was there and the Crown never refuted that possibility. Question. But the trial judge has the discretion to evaluate the, prop, the, the evidence in its entirety. I read her decision more than once and she talks about the major issue of credibility by your client because your colleague wants to, wonders what else he could have done. To, he could have been more credible, there are inconsistencies here and there in his testimony. Then there's the issue of the DNA. So a trial judge assesses everything he testified the various tests were applied, so I have difficulty believing your focus simply on the DNA. It's true that he, the judge did not believe the appellant with reason, but at the third step, he didn't wonder or ask whether there were other possible inferences. The Crown did not refute the reasonable presumption of the fact that the firearm could have been placed without his knowledge. The fact that he didn't testify or, or wasn't believed would not have been fatal. So this is not hypothetical. The bag is there, the DNA is there, the, there's a warrant of address, he gave a fake name. All these issues give reasonable inference leading to the fact that the bag could have been placed there without his knowledge. You can see the jurisprudence applicable for unreasonable, um, applicable to unreasonable verdicts and there's an issue that comes up. The evidence was well detailed showing the unreasonable inferences that could have been raised but that was not done. Question. But the firearm was in the bag. It was not just the firearm that was on top of the bag. It was surrounded by clothing. Your colleague said that everything happened so fast during the police uh, interception. But to place a firearm in that way, wrapped in clothing, I think that will take some time. I think the judge considered all that. Answer. Even though it took some time, let's suppose that he knew. It happened very fast. The crown the did not prove that that other inference was not possible. He was never seen before. No observation was done of the gentleman before the car was stopped. So the firearm was in his clothes. It could have taken more time. It wasn't on top of the clothes. That doesn't mean anything. There's the issue of consent. It could have been placed there without his knowledge. Maybe he didn't know. The police had just stopped the car. But even if he knew that he was there, no evidence was shown to, to prove that he consented. 
Question. The judge rejected the appellant's claim that it was there before. Yes. I agree with you that the judge rejected that testimony with reason, but at the whether whether they were in front or behind, the fact is that the back is by Mr. Venulus and by Kevinson. And this is a reasonable inference. In other cases, rejecting the appellant's testimony is fatal because the theory becomes hypothetical. It wasn't reasonable. The fact that the firearm was placed without me the knowledge of Mr. Venolos was reasonable if it was simply hypothetical. For example, no DNA was found in the firearm. Then, rejection of Mr. Venolos' testimony would have been fatal, but this is not the case. Rejecting his uh, testimony would not have been fatal. Question, do you have any other evidence? You have less than a minute left. No, I'll take your questions if you have any. Thank you, counsel. Now we'll listen to Mr. Mackey. Madame, Monsieur le Juge, please. Justices, the only issue before the court is the one identified by my letter friend at the beginning to find out if there's a reversible error that was made. We see that Judge Justice Moore correctly applied the review standards. The dissenting judge, with respect, does exactly looks did something else, drawing references that are not consistent with Mr. Venolis's version in court. So, as Justice Cote said, the circumstances presented by the defense gives the trial judge the possibility of making or drawing the inference of possession to arrive at the guilt of Mr. Venolis, a car, a closed environment, the back is by his feet, is by his right foot at the time that the car is stopped. His personal effects are in the back. The back is two thirds full. There are some items covering the firearm. It's concealed and there are clothes on top of the firearm. From these circumstances, even though Mr. Daniel's DNA is on the firearm, the judge could find, could arrive at a guilty verdict. He testified at the at trial. His testimony was rejected. So trying to come up with a theory which wasn't pleaded at the trial court well, the Court of Appeal could always look at various inferences. It's the role of the Court of Appeal to examine the evidence and inferences. But here, the inference that was retained by Justice Schrager is not consistent with the defense that was presented and Mr. Benelulis's defense because his entire defense was based on 
occasions where Mr. Daniel was alone with the bag in the evening. So I'll come back later to that in detail, but the main claim made by the defense give the judge the opportunity to draw a reasonable inference and arrive at guilt. Question, I asked your colleague how he interpreted paragraph 38 of the Court of Appeal majority decision where we talk about the, the issue that you've just raised. I will ask you the same thing when it comes to the DNA evidence. More precisely, the way that Justice Moore expresses himself for the majority. He says, this proof DNA evidence cannot reverse the burden of the crown. It doesn't matter whether the appellant placed the firearm himself in the bag. The prosecution could simply establish that it wasn't placed there without his knowledge or without his consent. But it's specifically the conclusion that the judge makes. It's particularly that last sentence that I would like to put to you. Because we are following your argument and you are repeating Justice Moore's argument. But can you tell us where in the trial judge's decision do we see that it's mainly the conclusion made? Answer. In the trial decision the judge talks about the meaning he could give to genetic evidence it proves that there was some contact between Kevinson Daniel and the firearm that's what the DNA proves when it comes to the end of paragraph 38 when Justice Moore talks about the finding my understanding is that he's talking about the guilty finding by arriving at the guilty verdict for Mr. Venelus, the judge feels that possession, irrespective of the mode of concession, be it joint or constructive, because that's what paragraph 38 addresses, joint possession or constructive possession. And this goes directly to the heart of Justice Straga's argument, where the presence of DNA is decisive and it should be more important according to the dissenting judge. This, the, any contact by Mr. Daniel is not necessarily decisive when it comes to possession. When there's proof of past contact, be it digital or genetic, it's one of the elements to consider. Mr. Daniel's DNA was there. Are you, you are talking about past contact, but there was no DNA of the accused. And the absence of any genetic evidence is not decisive. And the fact that the presence of any other genetic evidence on the firearm, well, it's definitely the case. Once again, let me come back to you, to the judge's uh, conclusion. The sentence before that is the second theory. If it had not been placed there without his knowledge or without his consent. So be it constructive possession or joint possession, I was looking to find where 
that conclusion was specifically retained by the judge. Let's not forget the judgment and the arguments made at trial. The fact that the firearm was concealed. That was at the heart of the defense theory. The fact that it was Mr. Daniel. At, at some point, without the knowledge of Mr. Venolos, when he was not near his back. This leads me to read something that came to my mind when you put a question to my learned friend. Well, I'll come back to that later on. Just to conclude with the judgment, except I've not satisfactorily answered your last question. The judge talks about the calm displayed by Mr. Venelus. And let's not forget that the trial judge, when it comes to the circumstantial evidence, according to her, it's something that confirms knowledge. My understanding of this comment by the judge, and that is what Justice Moore also concluded is that it's an additional element that confirms something, but it's not decisive. So even if the court finds that there's an error in law or an error that goes to the heart of the reasonableness of the verdict, in my opinion, when we look at this, the verdict stands. Question, why should it be an error? I do not see the grounds for, for that. Don't you agree with paragraph 37? Answer, I totally agree with that. It's only when my learned friend says that this argument is part of an error in law. Question, is there an argument that could justify that position in your opinion? Answer, that is what the prosecutor pleaded at trial. In the, looking at the entire police intervention, looking at the totality of evidence, and looking at, that's an element that adds weight to possession and that was a prosecution argument or another element that could help the defense it's neutral but the judge chose something else in miyakov in tab 15 of the condensed book the paragraph is cited in the brief it's in paragraph 34 the majority reasons it wasn't the most obvious reference and it was not the only inference that the judge could have drawn but that is the one that she decided to draw question your i put the question to your colleague whether it was an error in law or whether it had to do with the unreasonableness of the verdict his response was that it was an error in law so you don't agree answer no we think that it's an element that the judge could have properly considered if there was a problem. The verdict is unchanged given the circumstances that were presented by the evidence that was presented surrounding the firearm that was found. Now, looking at Judge Traga who dissented, something that should be mentioned is that And this is something that the Rafman ruling is trying to, to end. The appeal court should evaluate the evidence according to case law. It's not up to the appeal judge to look at the possibilities of alternate inferences. 
and to find out whether something was reasonable or not to come up with a guilty plea. So Justice Shraga in paragraph 6 of his reasons wonders, I'm in tab 2 of the condensed book, the only issue is to find out whether the trial judge could conclude from evidence presented that the only possible inference in the circumstances was possession of a firearm. So the only possible inference, that's not the issue here. And later on, Justice Shraga, in his reasons, sees in Mr. Daniel's DNA presence and the proximity, his proximity to the firearm, sees sufficient evidence to support uh, guilt. So in your opinion, the judge chose the wrong word. It's not only about the choice of a word in a paragraph. I'm not challenging you. I'm just trying to understand your position. It announces what was done. This is not about a matter in dispute that is not well formulated. But when we look at what was done or said by the dissenting judge, we think that he was asking the wrong question. So would, would the position have been the same? We think that he's asking the wrong question and uses a review standard. He never asked why the inference is drawn why the inference drawn was unreasonable. He says that the judge took it for granted that Mr. Venelius knew what was inside his bag because of the proximity, because it was his bag. But they didn't look at the elements. She didn't look at the entire evidence and how that inference of knowledge was unreasonable. When you read the reasons, you do not understand why the verdict is unreasonable, except for the fact that he sees that there was a possibility of an alternative inference. Was there any other inference that could have been consistent with guilt that could not have been considered? That's how I read, read his reasons. The judge considered the inferences that were put to her in Mr. Venelius's uh, testimony by the defense. And as I said, the entire defense was based on op opportunities where Mr. Venelus was not near his back and I've presented except in tab 5 and 6 of the condensed book. In uh, tab 5 in Mr. In Mr. Venelus's cross, he cites the different theories. So I won't go through the transcription, but that's where you see the different moments. Uh, during the evening, Mr. Vernalis left the vehicle, and during the first interactions with the police, Mr. Vernalis waited at up to a minute uh, before throwing himself into the back seat in order to avoid being identified. Question. So he went from the front seat to the back seat of the car. That's not the same version that was given during the investigation. Yes, it, it was one of the contradictions that was part of Mr. Vernalis's testimony during trial. 
the fact that he threw himself to the back of the car, and this is important to keep in mind, the judge concluded that when the police saw the vehicle and decided to stop the car, there was only one person in front of the car. So that is a factual determination, and Justice Brown asked this question earlier. So Mr. Vernalis was not in uh, the front of the vehicle, and uh, so it was believed that there was only one person uh, sitting in the driver's seat. So I think that's important because when the police uh, put uh, their lights on, Mr. Vernalis was in the back of the car. So that is a fact uh, that means that the possibility of um, hiding the weapon without the knowledge of Mr. Vernalis uh, is uh, voided because Mr. Vernalis was in the back seat. So if uh, the weapon was hidden without his knowledge, uh, then um. it is uh, at that moment when Mr. Vernalis was in the back seat with Mr. Daniel that Mr. Daniel uh, could have hidden the weapon. So if you look at uh, paragraph 38, 38 responds to this potential scenario where Mr. Daniel might have hidden the weapon. Question. The trial judge mentions that a third witness appeared. A agent uh, Rodil answer. No, he did not testify. His uh, testimony was described by the other two officers. That's an error in, uh, in the decision. So what Justice Schrager does in suggesting the inference is accepting the conclusions of fact that Mr. Vernalis was in the back seat. That is what we must understand because it's not a fact that was disputed at the appeal court. It's at page 9 in tab 1. Lines 18 19. The window was uh, clear and the police officers could see only one occupant in the front of the car, the driver. So to examine the foundation of what the dissenting judge is arguing, you have to keep that fact in mind. Since Mr. Vernalis was in the back seat, the inference that the dissenting judge suggests is difficult to reconcile with Mr. Vernalis's testimony. It was necessary for him to raise a doubt about those moments when Mr. Daniel was alone in the back seat with the bag. But everything that happened is a pure speculation. We can't know that Mr. Daniel put the weapon in the bag earlier in the evening. So what is left? What the police officers observed and the minute in the minutes preceding the intervention. What I argue, and that's why I reproduced Grover at tab 9. Of course, the facts are different, but an appellate court 
faced with a testimony, a witness testimony that is rejected at trial, cannot uh, put forward a new theory that is uh, irreconcilable with the versions of the facts. And that's what I argue about Justice Schreiger's uh, inference. And finally, and this is the most convincing demonstration that what the dissenting judge suggests does not uh, stand up to the facts, is the fact that the weapon was hidden in the middle of the bag, in a brown paper bag, wrapped up in clothes, in a closed space. Mr. Vernalis was less than two feet away from Mr. Denyan. Mr. Denyan would have had to bend over the back to access it. He would have had to play in the bag to get to the weapon. And that is why I included at tab three the explanations provided by Officer Perrault Bolduc. So he explains what he had to do to find the weapon. And I think that if that's if it was necessary to move clothing aside to find the weapon, then you would need to do similar types of movements within the bag to hide the weapon. The bag was almost on Mr. Vernalis's right foot. And so all of that leads me to conclude that it would have been impossible to hide a weapon without the knowledge of Mr. Vernalis. It's uh, not just conjecture, it's factually impossible. And at tab four, question, but we don't have to decide if it's impossible according to facts. Answer, no, you don't. Question, you're asking us to go very far here. That's not our function to measure the strength of the crown's theory. Our only goal here is to determine whether the judge was right or wrong. Answer. Yes, I believe that those facts are already established. And in talking about these factual possibilities, I'm trying to explain why the dissenting judge identified at appeal why uh, uh, this other inference, and I believe those that inference does not stand up to the facts. And so I'm simply communicating this now to show that that dissenting theory does not allow us to conclude that the trial judge erred. The judge concluded that uh, the driver was alone in the front of the car and that uh, restricted potential inferences. The only reasonable inference was uh, that Mr. Vanillis was guilty. What the majority of the appellate court did was simply look at uh, what the trial judge had done between uh, determining what is factually reasonable or not. So unless there are any questions, uh, I have nothing more to add. Thank you. Reply?
Hello? I'd just like to add something about the uh, Supreme Court decision, Grover, tab 9. If you look at page 512, the next to last page, at the very bottom, where the accused testifies and offers an explanation for his or her actions, which the trial judge then rejects, it is not the task of a court of appeal to come up with another rational explanation. And on the following page, we agree it was not open to the court of appeal to quit the respondent on the basis of speculation about a possible explanation of his conduct that was flatly contradicted by his own testimony. We're not dealing with a case here where Mr. Vernalis's testimony contradicted the fact that Mr. Daniel could have placed the weapon in the bag. And even the fact that he moved to the back of the vehicle when the police arrived, there is a reasonable inference that can be drawn that the passenger could have placed the weapon in the bag without the knowledge of the accused. We're not in a, a hypothetical here. The, the bag is there, the weapon is there. All of the elements at play here show that it could be a reasonable inference that Mr. Vernalis is innocent. Thank you. We are going to ask you to remain here. We're going to withdraw short, shortly. Be seated. Thank you for staying. We would like to thank Council for your arguments. The court is ready to hand down its decision. It is unanimous and Justice Kazir will read our decision. Thank you. The court will dismiss the appeal for the same reasons as Justice Moore at the Appeal Court of Quebec. We share the view that it was reasonable for the trial judge to conclude that considered as a whole the evidence excluded all other possibilities than guilt. R. V. Roman quoted in paragraph 41 of her reasons. All of the means of appeal are without foundation. The trial judge did not commit an error at law in applying the RVW tests. If the judge agreed that uh, the evidence was circumstantial, then 
she would not have been before any of the evidence. Nothing leads us to believe that the defense evidence could lead to a finding of innocence. In the appellate decision, in paragraph 36, they say that they reject the appellant's testimony and that is fatal for the defense. Secondly, the Court of Appeal majority did not misapply Villa, the Villa Roman decision. The only reasonable inference test does not mean that guilt had to be the only possible inference or imaginable inference. The dissenting judge insists on the fact that it was reasonable and not conjectural to infer the possibility that Mr. Daniel could have placed the weapon in the bag. Paragraph 28. That hypothesis is indeed plausible given the fact that Mr. Daniel was sitting next to the bag and that his DNA was found on the weapon. However, as the majority says, the fact that it was the appellant or not who positioned the weapon in the bag does not matter much. Paragraph 38. Because the prosecution established that the weapon had not been placed there without the knowledge or consent of the appellant. And therefore, the trial judge could conclude that the only reasonable inference was that the hiding of the weapon in the bag had been done with the knowledge of the appellant. Thirdly, the trial judge did not err in referring to the appellant's calm demeanor at the time of his arrest for possessing possession of a firearm. As the majority judges said, the judge did not use that to assess the appellant's credibility during his testimony, but to simply take it into account as circumstantial evidence showing the appellant's knowledge of the weapon in his bag. For all of those reasons, the appeal is dismissed. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. The court is adjourned until tomorrow morning.